good morning. Uh, welcome. Welcome to those who are watching online. Uh, I wanted to say Merry Christmas. Uh, Predated, is that the right word to say? <laughs> but anyway, it's, uh, we celebrate Christmas all year long, so it's, uh, it's really it's just not just a day. But anyway, uh, just a couple of announcements before we get started. We do have our Bible study tonight at 6 on uh, Better Way to Pray. It's uh, a good, good Bible study that we're doing here. We're also next Saturday. Will be the last Saturday of the year. We're going to do a game night here at about 6 30. So if you're in town, local, whatever, just want to hang out, uh, we, we have a party going on. So, uh, uh, and whatnot. I think that's the only thing I have. So for our classes are still going on free online on our website, lighthousediscipleship.org. And feel free to take the Bible classes and free. And uh, anyway, I don't think I have any more announcements right now. We'll have some more probably next week as we get into the new year. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get uh, the word this morning. I wasn't going to do a Christmas message. I wasn't led that way this year. And then uh, all of a sudden, I uh, kind of flipped the coin, and here we are. And I'm going to do a Christmas message. We'll pick up our regular series in Christ Realities next week. Uh, but I just felt like doing a Christmas message. And this is actually a message I've done before. And it's a little different style of teaching than I'm used to. Uh, what I'm going to be doing is looking at the Christmas story and looking at some different facts. And my, whole, my heart is not just to be factual. My heart is to actually put a message out of this. And, uh, and I'm going to be, in some ways, I'm going to be looking at some of the traditional story from a biblical point of view. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. It'll make more sense as we go forward, hopefully. Uh, and just, uh, and, uh, tradition has painted sometimes a different picture with some, certain aspects of the Christmas story. And I'm no way to try to take away from that. The main thing is our, our Savior was born to us. He came to die and he rose again. That's the main message. Uh, the little details are not so, uh, they're not a main doctrine. They're not a main foundation. At the same point, point in time, I believe by bringing this out, it will help us appreciate the Christmas message all the more. That, that's my point. And even appreciate some of the Old Testament all the more as it portrays Christ as it reveals Christ, and how we'll see some of, even the Old Testament, how uh, some of the stuff, like, why was God doing that? What does that have to do with anything? And yet, it all points to Christ. It all points to our Savior being born, and it's just awesome. So that's part of my highlight. But I always, anytime I go to Christmas, I, I always come to this main verse, and I'm going to start here this morning. Uh, uh, with Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. I'm not going to read the whole context, but uh, it says, for unto us. And who's us? That's you. That's me. Okay? That's us. Uh, for unto us a child is born. This Jesus that we're going to be talking about, this Savior, this Messiah is born to us. And no matter what generation you are, no matter what era you are, no matter what, what culture you come from, this child is born unto us. And unto us, again, as a son, is given. It's a gift to you. It's born for you. It's given to you. Uh, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Not upon uh, any natural government of this world. Not upon any per per particular, but upon him. This child, this son who's been given to us, the government will be upon his shoulder. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We sang that in one of our songs this morning. And he shall reign forevermore. And it's on his shoulders. 
But we are the body of Christ. And so that means it's also on our shoulders as he is in us and we are in him. That makes sense? Now outside of that context of we and him and he and us, and we've been talking on Sunday mornings in Christ's realities uh, for the last several weeks. So as we are, and there's over 300 scriptures in the New Testament talking about who we are in Christ. And we're not separated from Christ. We are in Christ. We are born again. We're born of the Father. And we've been regenerated into, into uh, meaning no disrespect to our natural parents, but we have a heavenly Father. And we're born again. And in Him, we are, the government will be upon His shoulder. But in verse 7 goes on, it says, Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. We'll come back to some of this peace part, hopefully, if we get time to, this morning. But uh, uh, there will be there's no end to His government. No matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in our society, no matter what happens in our country, his government will increase. And there will be no, there will be no end to his peace. And even if we die, uh, and Jesus comes again, we're going to have his peace and his government reigning for all eternity. We can't lose. <laughs> you know, if we're, if we're here, we have the Lord. If we, if, we, uh, if we die, we have the Lord. So either way, we win. Uh, Jesus did say, and uh, does not discover my message this morning, but in this world we will have tribulations. There will be things going on in this world. But, but, but he has overcome the world. And he is in us. Amen? He's our hope. He's our sufficiency. He's our peace. So even as I go through some scriptural facts, and I'm hoping this doesn't come across as dry, uh, this is my heart. This is where I'm coming from. And I'll, I'll bring this back a little bit later on. But let's go ahead and we're going to start with Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read a little te text here to get a little context and uh, uh, get started. But it says in Luke chapter 2, beginning verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. We're going to skip down to verse 4. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into the Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Verse 5. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, and was with who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him up in swaddling cloths, and lined him in the manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, for which will be to all people. All people is a key phrase there. So this is to us, going back to what I just talked about a little bit ago. For there is born to who? You. So we can all point to ourselves to you. I point to each other to you this day. In the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And I'm going to come back to some of these uh, highlighted parts as we go forward. Um, uh, or not. So this is a, a, a Jesus story. We've heard the story many times through the years, most of us. And uh, whatnot, and so I'm going to break apart some of this as we go as we go forward, not just from this context, but some other ones as well. But there's a sign that, that, that Mary and Joseph are 
heading to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus had made a decree that everyone had to go back for a census to their, their, their ancestral home. And I'll bring that out in a few moments. And while they're there, Jesus is born. Uh, they couldn't find a place in the inn. I'll, I'll speak to that in just a few moments. And then how he was born in a manger. Uh, but then the, 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 the shepherds, while they were uh, watching their, their flocks, the angels came and declared the birth of Jesus. And they said to these shepherds, I'm going to come spend some time on this in just a minute. There's a sign to you that you'll find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. This whole scene makes, and we made the whole manger scene, the nativity scene, uh, with a, a, a babe wrapped, wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a nice uh, straw uh, a little manger set and whatnot. And I'm not trying to take away from that, but I want to bring out some things in Scripture that point out exactly a little more detail of what that looks like and the significance of that. Okay, hopefully I'm, hopefully I'm making sense. I want to focus real, real quick here. If I take this verse in the New Young's Literal Translation, it says it this way, and this is to you that does sign. There's a sign. There's two things in the sign. First of all, you will find a babe wrapped up lying in the manger. Swatting cross is not right here. We'll come back to that. But it's not just any manger, but it's the manger. It's very specific. It's a definite article. So there's a very specific manger of where to go to. We're going to bring some highlights to that in just a moment. Okay? We back it up in verse 7 in the same context. We see again in the Young's Little Translation, the manger again. I'm not going to read all that context again. That makes sense? I'm going to highlight this in just a second. Now, let me just bring some context. These weren't just any shepherds. These were priestly shepherds. If you study the whole Old Testament, Levitical law, whatever, there's different tribes, and one of the tribes is Levi, and they are the, 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 the priesthood. Okay? But and, and the, uh, they were told to go to Bethlehem and, and see. In Bethlehem, that's where the priestly shepherds were. They had flocks. These weren't just any shepherds. For example, the, the priestly shepherds had to offer sacrifices all the time. So they had a very specific ritual. They had a very specific flocks and whatnot to watch. They needed to make sure that they find a lamb without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. And, uh, but it, a lot of times we just think of Passover. We think of Easter when they had to do this the year, the year until Jesus came. But priests and shepherds, the, sacri uh, the sacrificial lamb, if you read, I'm not going to bore you with hopefully too much of detail about the, the Old Testament, but they didn't have a sacrificial lamb on Passover annually, but they had burnt offerings twice a day. I'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. Twice every day they had to sacrifice a lamb. You, you see how that can add up real quick? There's 365 days a year times two. And they have to have a male one for the, the burnt offerings. They have to have female ones for the peace offerings. This is all a little bit of a lot. I'm not going to go through all that detail. But then they had to offer the burnt offering. They had to offer it twice a day. That's two times a day plus the, the annual Passover. That's a lot of sheep. That's a lot of, that's a lot of blood, too. I'm not going to try to be too gory with this. But uh, they had a full-time job of raising sheep so they could have a qualified sheep for all these offerings of the year. So these, and, and, and a lot of this took place in Bethlehem. Not only did they do that, it was twice a day, but it was also uh, one in the morning, and, uh, which, we, which is very significant because if you go to Mark 15, 25, and now it was the third hour when they were crucifying him. They had to 
they, they have an offer, the burnt offering, on the third hour and also on the ninth hour every day. Which is very significant. This is when Jesus was crucified as far as being hoisted up onto the, uh, the, the, the cross. But it was the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eoi, Eoi, Lama, I can't pronounce that. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the same context, with verse 37, and Jesus having uttered a loud cry, healed up the spirit. That's when he died on the cross. And it's in that context where John echoes when Jesus said, it is finished. I'm not trying to bore with a bunch of detail, but it, one thing I'm trying to bring out, and I'm going to bring it out with some, some just, with some detail this morning, that God orchestrated all the law, the Levitical laws and rituals and, and customs, and we're going to find out he orchestrated such a way that Jesus, through Mary, was born in the same type of manger that a sacrificial lamb would be born time and time again. God orchestrated history. God orchestrated the law, not just make a bunch of laws and customs. There's different laws for different reasons. But God orchestrated that Jesus would be born not just in any manger, but in the manger to priestly shepherds. Who I mean, you can just imagine these priestly shepherds year after year after year. They were specifically trained and ordained by God to seek out the, the, the sacrificial lamb for Passover, for the burnt offering. And uh, when I taught on the burnt offering before, let me just make a quick note. There's in Leviticus chapters one through five, you have five different kinds of offerings. In Leviticus one, you have the burnt offering. In Leviticus four, you have the sin offering. And there's different kinds of offerings for different reasons, but they all point to Jesus, our Lamb, who, who has died for us. So the, the sin offering represented when people found the Lamb, that the sin was exchanged to the Lamb, the Lamb was slaughtered and crucified. The burnt offering represents the unblemishedness of the Lamb being transferred to us. My favorite verse says, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin became sin, that sin offering, that we might become the righteousness of God, the burnt offering, in him. We're not righteous outside of him, we're righteous in him. And that word righteousness, and I'll be doing a series on this in January, and probably in February again, uh, which is our main message we teach here. The righteousness, the uh, word righteousness is used 512 times in scripture, and it's a noun, it's not a verb. It describes who we are in Christ because of what he did, not what we do. We live righteous because we are righteous. We don't live righteous to become righteous. If we did that, we don't need a lamb. We don't need Jesus. If we can become righteous by us doing righteousness, then we don't need a substitute. We don't need a propitiation. We don't need a sacrifice. But we did need a sacrifice. We did need a substitute. And because we are righteous, we the Bible says... Awake to righteousness and sin not. It doesn't say sin not to become righteous. It says awake to who you are. And that will give you the power of sin. We have seen so many people set free from so many uh, walks of life, lifestyles, addictions, because they understood righteousness. I had my own addictions in my life. And when I found out who I was. I'm not trying to teach on so much on righteousness right now. I mean, no, there's, this, there's an underlying foundation of what I'm teaching this morning. But... But the burnt offering, not just the Passover lamb, speaks of our righteousness. 
And God wanted them to do it before and after, the, the beginning and the end of every day, the book, the bookshelf, if you will, the bookends of every day. We want us to be reminded every day of our righteousness. We need that reminder. We have his table of remembrance. Remember that his body was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. We need the remembrance. We get so busy just in this natural world and even this corrupt world uh, at times, and we need a reminder. And, but Jesus is our burnt offering. He doesn't, he's not the substitute. He's not the sacrifice. He, he's our substitute. But the Old Testament sacrifices were just an allegory of the real Jesus who would come. And here are these priestly shepherds, day after day, year after year, preparing a sacrificial lamb. And God, we're going to see him in this message this morning, that God orchestrated all the law and the prophets. He orchestrated the events of history, even with Mary and Joseph, so that Jesus was born in the very same manger that the lambs were born in every day. That's God. A God that would orchestrate certain things to orchestrate that reality. And I just love that. That makes me appreciate the Christmas message all the more. It just makes it richer for me. That making sense to you so far? So the burnt offering is called the Tamid. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right in Hebrew, but it was very strict. It would, they had to make sure it was just probably the strictest of all offerings, including the Passover, where it had to be a male, it had to be without blemish, and it could not be replaced. It had to, uh, and so it was a very good burnt offering. Switching gears here a little bit, in Micah 4 8, it says, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it, the Messiah, the Lamb, come. Okay? And again, I don't want to bore you with all these different details, Old Testament stuff, but that's good one. Let's look at this tower of the flock. Tower of the flock in the Hebrew means Miguel Eder. Okay? That probably doesn't mean anything to you, just a name right now. And that's fine. But it was located in the northern Bethlehem. It was a station where the shepherds brought their flocks destined for sacrifice. It was a specific location. It was a specific tower or Miguel header. And, uh, it was a place where the priestly shepherds specifically trained for their royal task of not only uh, offering their sacrificial lambs, but also they had to make they had to inspect the lambs. See, even when we look at the communion. Uh, in the Levitical law, they never inspected the man. They always inspected the lamb. We're not seeing if we are without spot or wrinkle. We're seeing if he is without spot or wrinkle. He who knew us and became sin that we might become. There's an exchange taking place. We are without spot or wrinkle because we have Jesus. We are sanctified. We are holy. We are pure, not because of what we've done, but because of what he did. I believe when we stand before Jesus, God's not going to ask us what we did about this, this, and this. He's going to ask, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with my... Messiah, my Savior. Yes, we need to live righteously. Yes, we, we need to live godly. But God, through the knowledge of Him, we have received all things that pertain to life and godliness. We need to know Him. We need to receive Jesus. But these, these priestly shepherds also maintained the strict ceremonial clean, clean births. Even the birthing process was very strict. Uh, because, and um, you know, we look at all this living in laws to us, it's just Greek, it's just Hebrew, it's just law, it's just, it, it means, it's, sometimes it just seems like a bunch of nonsense. But, that, it points to Jesus where there could be only one substitute, and that's Jesus. It all points to, it had to very, be a very specific person, and very specific, uh, without spot, without wrinkle. And everything, including the birth, that was very specific, through a lot of detail. 
This is what uh, the, the tower of uh, the block uh, Miguel Ender looks like. Something like this is one image, and this is another one, Northern Bethlehem. At the top, that right tower of the block, it looks somewhat like a tower. Just making sense. I hope this is not dry. I know there's a bunch of details. Like I said, there's a different message, and I know we're different page. But in the lower level of this tower of the block, it's called the birthing room. And at once birth, they were placed in a manger. And they were wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now the manger, we, we, we normally have a, a wooden little uh, cradle with shaw in it, and, but it was actually a human depression of limestone rock. It looks something like this. Which also looks to me something like a tomb. <laughs> you know, and Jesus is in it, you can't, and he came to that. But at the same point in time, you know, again, I know, this looks uncomfortable. It's not as comfortable as our little cradles. So you get a, uh, well, uh, any, whatever, whatever you buy cradles now. They used to be babies or us for me, for us, but, uh, but now uh, that's gone out. So I, I, whatever you get, cradles, Target probably would not. But in, keep in mind that this, this lambs had to be without blemish, so they couldn't hurt themselves. They couldn't, they couldn't injure themselves. They were also wrapped in swaddling cloths. These swaddling cloths were also known as swaddling, swaddling bands and were used to do the animals, prepare for sacrifice, so they could not only inspect them, but so they couldn't not injure themselves. So they had to be bound to be valid. We see this also in Genesis 22 when Abraham was asked, told by God to offer up Isaac, which he didn't actually have to fall through with that because God provided the land. But in that context, uh, then they, Abraham and his son Isaac, came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood on the altar, and he bound Isaac, his son. The lamb had to be bound. Jesus had to be bound on the cross. It was part of the Levitical law. Again, I'm not trying to focus on all these details just out of the, in and of themselves, but Jesus was not only in the manger, in a very specific manger, in a very specific place where the priestly shepherds were, but he was also wrapped in the same swaddling cloths that a lamb would be, uh, the sacrificial lamb would be, would be. And it would go, because, because there was a born to you today a Savior who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. We're going to come back to a little bit of this. Okay. Um, again, the sign that you read in the manger. My point, point here in this first part of my message this morning is that these priestly shepherds who would prepare a sacrificial lamb every day would see the birthing process all the time. They would know exactly where to go in Bethlehem to a very specific manger to where there would be swaddling cloths and they knew what the swaddling cloths were for. We might, we look at it as a beautiful Christmas story and it is. But these priestly shepherds knew exactly what was going on when that announcement was made. That's awesome. Because that was their job. That's, that was their destined job day in and day out, year in and year out, preparing the land. And finally, the, that, that, all, all they were doing was preparing an allegory of the real thing. And finally, the real thing shows up. The real Jesus shows up. The real Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. I just love that. I know and a lot of the details might not make you feel warm and fuzzy. I don't know, maybe it does. But at just that same point in time, I just love the detail of that. Uh, 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 where God knows exactly what he was doing. It makes you appreciate it all the more. That making sense? Okay. This is an animal size to John one twenty nine. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him at the baptism. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? 
going to switch gears a little bit and talk about Mary and Joseph a little bit. Mary and Joseph, again, and I'm going to be very repetitive. I'm not trying to be boring this morning. But in Micah 4 8, it says, And you will tell the flock the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, and even the former dominion shall come in the kingdom of God or the Jerusalem. If you study Mary and Joseph, and you study their genealogies, we're not going to turn to all these genealogies. You ever read the Bible and you get the genealogies? Like, those are so boring. And some of us probably just we glance at it and then we'll skip the pages until we get to some more drama again. You know? Um, but if you read these, study these genealogies out, they're, they're very specific, you'll find that both Mary and Joseph are direct descendants of David. Which also means, because Boaz was, was David's great-grandfather, great they were all the descendants of Boaz. That's going to become very significant here in just a moment. They're both descendants of David. Okay? David had multiple wives, but he also had multiple sons. Through Bathsheba, he had two specific sons, Solomon and Nathan. Saul, Joseph came from Solomon's lineage, and Mary came from Nathan. Okay, that's their father. And if you read these, there's also two genealogies in the New Testament. Matthew and Luke has two short genealogies, and you'll find this as well. I'm not going to read all that detail, but if, uh, the, the point I'm trying to get to, Central Sage, is Church said I would always be a good lawyer. So, anyway, they came from a seed of royalty. But when Caesar Augustus called for a census, it required Mary and Joseph to go back to Bethlehem to their ancestral home. And if you read the book of Ruth, you'll find that Boaz, their great, 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 great grandfather, had a home in Bethlehem. That's where the threshing floor. Okay? But also, the biblical law, I'm not going to read all the details, but when a daughter is the only heir, she can inherit her father's possessions. If she marries within her own tribe, and there's no mention of Mary having brothers. Okay, that just sounds like a law. Uh, now, uh, I'm just trying to set the page, page, and I'm trying to make a long story short by saying that Mary and Joseph were required to go to Bethlehem. We kind of already knew that. Most of us did. But I just say the stage with us. Boaz, like I just mentioned, owned a home in Bethlehem with a threshing floor. And it would have, this home, this rushing floor would have been handed down through the generations within the lineage of David, and they both came from the lineage of David. Okay? And when the census came, they were to return to a place of origin, they found themselves at the sacrificial birthplace, the tower of the flock, that was mentioned in Micah 4.8 and other scriptures. Again, God is not just orchestrating the lamb being born in very specific places that we just talked about, but he, he's orchestrating for Mary and Joseph to go to that specific even through a not through a Caesar Augustus who had nothing to do with God, a wicked king, who would orchestrate a census to be taken so that they would end up right here. That makes sense. I shared all of that detail. I mean, that God orchestrated these events for everything else we just talked about already this morning. In the same context, though, it says in Luke two seven it says, and she Mary brought forth her firstborn son. And wrapped him in swaddle cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. We're going to look at the end in just a second, okay? In is the word kataluma in Greek, which means guest chamber. You'll see that same reference in these other passages. It's the, the upper room where they had the Last Supper, the Last Passover, is also 
called the guest senior chamber. We're not going to spend time on that this morning. But going back to the guys, little translation, what I just read in Luke 2 7, uh, without reading all of this again, the in is actually guest chamber. It's not in, it's a guest chamber. It's not like the Holiday Inn, you know, it's not like a Motel 6, it's not that type of man, it's a guest chamber. Uh, okay? But let, let me, here, here I'm going to get into some of the medical stuff, and I'm going to read all the details, because hopefully I'm not going to bore you with some of that. But in Levitical laws, if somebody had an issue of blood, they were called ceremonially unclean. That means they had to live separated from everyone else. That seems kind of rude. Seems kind of rude. Why would the one suffering have to be ostracized? <laughs> well, you know, that seems kind of rude. But God set the stage for something. Even in this law, that seems rude. Seems uh, uh, um, whatnot. But not only with someone with an issue of blood, but also, and that we find this in Leviticus 15, but in Leviticus 12, childbirth is the same way. Because in childbirth, there's usually a loss of blood. Okay? And that would make the mother ceremonially unclean. That would also mean that the mother could not give birth in a common place. She had to leave the home to give birth. Now that seems really rude. <laughs> you know, in one sense of the word. We, we, and, and I don't think, they're not trying to be uh, unsupportive of the mom, but there is a ritual here. So what I see in all this, and what I'm going to a lot of detail, is that the guest chamber, you know, everyone's going back to their, their ancestral home. Mary and Joseph were not the only ones going back to Bethlehem. And they were not the only ones from the lineage of David. Uh, okay. But you could just imagine the home being filled, and the guest chamber being filled, and her being, being in childbirth means she couldn't be in the guest chamber with everyone else. She had to be in a very specific place. And we're going to look at that. But God was, again, this seems kind of rude. If we look at it, I remember growing up, like, Lord, why are you making them be outside the camp? Let them have the house. Let everyone else go out outside the camp. You know? But God set the stage for Mary and Joseph to not just be in Bethlehem, but to be to a place called the Tower of the Flock, where the manger is. Where the, it's not an animal, and actually there's no, there's no scriptural evidence to support that, it was just an animal stable. Okay? Again, I'm not trying to take away from tradition. We have a nativity set. We celebrate that. But the main story is Jesus died for us. He came. He's a Savior. But I'm trying to bring out this child is born into us. The Son is given to us. God orchestrated a lot of to make sure that the picture that Jesus would be born in a very specific manger, in a very specific location, and to, and to, to the priests and whatnot. He orchestrated all this Levitical law, the sacrifices, the burnt offering, the, all this bloodshed, all this loss of blood and childbirth, all these rituals and laws, even including, including uh, Moaz having a threshing floor and being handed down through the generations and whatnot. For Mary to give birth in a very specific location where Jesus, our Messiah, our Lamb, was born. Hopefully, this is not drive my on my point to make this deep and just bring out the Christmas story all the more. Uh, I'm not attacking anything. I'm just trying to bring light to a Christmas story. Does that make sense? Going back to Micah, Micah, but Micah five two, it says, "But you, Bethlehem, have to oh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the 
one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are coming forth are from of old and from from of old and from everlasting. What epitha? Again, I don't know how to pronounce that. Is the ancient name for Bethlehem. Okay, and it's just above the shepherd's field, northeast of modern Bethlehem. So there's Bethlehem and there's ancient Bethlehem. Two different locations, pretty close to each other. But it's also, again, around the shepherd's field. And if you go there today, just northeast of modern Bethlehem, you'll see the, the ruins of Bethlehem. Okay? Bethlehem, Ephraim, is the place where Rachel was buried. Rachel was Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's wife. Uh, his, his, he had two. He won one, but he got two. That's all, you have to read Genesis to get all that. But if you read these passages in Genesis 38, 48, you'll see that it's called, uh, it's Rachel's burial tomb, where uh, Jacob's describing that to keeping Joseph with Genesis 48, uh, and it's called Bethlehem God, or, again, orchestrated. It's the same point that I'm trying to make. God orchestrated, even all the way back to some of the oldest stories we have in the Old Testament. God orchestrated that Mary and Joseph, their ancestral home was not so much modern Bethlehem, it was ancient Bethlehem in the shepherd's field where, uh, where the tower and the flock was. And it's also the birthplace of David, the king. Um, there's so many prophecies about Jesus being after the lineage of David. And so, does make sense? I know yeah. it can be a little dry in one sense, That's but I, it just, I mean, it's very intriguing. But God, here, here in the Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph have local roots, naturally speaking. And they contain, even within their, their own bodies, a seed of royalty, going back centuries, all the way back to almost the beginning of time. And it's the sacrificial birthplace of a sacrificial lamb, where Jesus, our Messiah, our King, is born. Now we're going to switch gears. Let's talk about the wise men. We were talking about that, I think, a little bit earlier today. And let's put some light on that. Let's put some context here on Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, beginning verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has has been born king of the Jews, for we have seen his star in the east, uh, and, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired where the, where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, and they're quoting actually from Micah 5 2, what we just read uh, a minute ago, in Bethlehem of Judea. But thus is written by the prophet, that you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for you out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We just read that in Micah, okay? Then Herod, when he had sickly called the wise men, determined from, from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard of the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east, they seen why they were in the east. They didn't see the star in the east. They saw the star when they were in the east. 
went before them till it came and stood before over where the Gentile was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, and I want to highlight that because sometimes we're again, uh, by this time he's probably about two years old, Jesus. Um, but he wasn't in a manger, uh, in a stable, he was in the house. Uh, it would only have been in the in that, in that uh, tower of the flock during the birthing process. Once she became ceremonially clean, she would be welcomed back in the home. But they also flew, flew to Egypt for a while, so we don't, I don't know the exact timeline when they, um, these wise men are coming. But, but they come to, into the house, when they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him, and when they had opened their treasures and presented him, gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, we don't know how many wise men there were, we assume kind of because three because it's three gifts, but we don't still we, there's no evidence of knowing for sure how many wise men. Who are these wise men? The word wise man in the Greek is magus, which we get the word magi, or wise men. Um, they're from the east, and we're gonna deal with that in just a moment. Some people think they're kings, and that's a possibility. There's three uh, references in Isaiah and Psalms that, that can be referred to them as kings. Uh, so that, that can be one interpretation. Uh, some don't think they're kings, they're just wise men, and I'll put some light to that in just a moment. Um, I can go with either one. Uh, but to me, the king part is not so, uh, it's not a major point for me. Uh, it's uh, who are these men as more uh, uh, significant to me. Okay. If you study the Old Testament, ancient history, there was a time when Israel was was captive to Babylon uh, during the fall of Jerusalem, and in that in that in that exile, Babylon deport, deported many upper class men. They wanted the best of when they they took over Jerusalem when they took over uh, uh, Israel and Judah. They 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 wanted to take the the best. You know, they didn't want to just kill the, the wise men. These, these wise upper class men, they wanted to use them. They wanted, they wanted to glean for their knowledge and their wisdom. Whatnot. So they, they captured them. Included in that was Daniel and the three Hebrew children. We can read in the book of Daniel. Uh, three Hebrew children are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's where we get the, the fiery furnace and we got Daniel in the lion's den. But Daniel wasn't, uh, we see Daniel not only under Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, but also in Persia. Uh, Persia finally took over Babylon. And then finally, eventually, Roman took over Persia. But these, uh, these exiled people never left the region, never left the east. Uh, they, they stayed there. And just so you know, just to give you a little uh, geography, Persia is actually modern-day Iran, and Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Okay? Just to kind of put you on the map a little bit where it's at. That's not so significant. But they, they, started, they started out as, they're, but they're Hebrews. But they're captive, they're POWs, if you will, prisoners of war, and, uh, and Babylon and Persia took over, they're still there. And we had, that's, it was under King Darius, a Persian king, that we find Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, we find the Hebrew children under Nebuchadnezzar in the fiery furnace, but they're in the east, in the, and Iran, Iraq, is east of Israel, okay? And some of us probably knew that. But let's look at Daniel 9, one of Daniel's favorite, famous prophecies. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street, I'm sorry, the street shall be built again, and the wall even in the troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy and the city and sanctuary, the end of it shall be with a flood, and, and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm a covenant with me for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes the desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So there's a lot in there, I'm not going to go into all that detail. Okay. But if you study this prophecy out, not just the verses are read, but even more, you'll see the timeline for the birth of Messiah. And also the destruction of Jerusalem, which also made Herod, uh, 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 who was also, he wanted to be king, <laughs> from a natural point of view. These wise men were Hebrews. They were captives, but they were wise men. And through the years, since Daniel's day, these Hebrews continue to grow. They were still their, their, their natural Hebrews. But these Hebrews were also called the Torah Hebrews. Torah is a, is a, a fancy word for uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books, called the Law of the Torah. They were the Torah Hebrews. They, they studied these prophecies. They had knowledgeable, they were knowledgeable of Daniel's writings. One, they were in Persia. Daniel was in Persia when he wrote these, these prophecies. No one else would have cared in that day, in that era, about these prophecies, except for these Hebrews that were in Persia. To examine these scriptures, it would have been of no interest to any of the other Persians, to any of the other Babylonians, or even by this time, now Romans could have taken over Persia. And so, only these Hebrew wise men, not book classmen. Daniel was considered a wise man. The three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Menegro were considered wise men in many ways. But no one else would have been determined to find their king, a messiah. Not only allowed to study the scriptures, but to travel 800, 900 miles by camel or foot or whatever kind of modern transportation they had. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, camel with an upper class versus uh, a donkey or horse or whatnot. Only the Hebrews would have had so much determination not only to seek the scriptures, but to travel 800, 900 miles to see the king. That makes sense. The, the Persians wouldn't have cared about that. Uh, Herod wanted to kill him, Jesus. But uh, these Hebrews would have wanted to go. So whether they were kings themselves, I don't know. But they were wise men who were actually natives from... Um, the same era of Daniel and the three of the That makes sense? But going back to Matthew 2, 2 okay, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and come to worship him. Stars, again, I'm not going to read all these scriptures, but stars always describe the children of Israel. Stars itself. Remember the vision that God gave Abraham? And your children will be like the stars of the sky and whatnot. We will find out in the scriptures, stars were always significant. But there's also another phrase. 
In Numbers chapter 24, King Moab, uh, Balak at the time, wanted to curse Israel. So he hired Balaam uh, to, to, to pronounce a curse over Israel. But when Balaam tried to pronounce a curse over him, he tried this three, three times. Three times. Um, uh, every time he tried to give a curse over Israel, a blessing came out. He just kept cursing. A blessing came out. And in one of those blessings, this prophecy came out of Balaam. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Who's Jacob? Jacob is Rachel's husband. Where, uh, uh, where we find the tower of the cloth. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tom. Balak, who was the king of Moab, didn't like that thing much. He wanted opposite. And now he was blessed, he was blessing Israel and cursing Moab. And that was thinking, well, who's Balaam? Balaam lived in Bethor, off the Euphrates River near Persia in the east. Same region. Okay? And he saw and again just a lot just a bunch of facts this morning. <coughs> but we see all this history for God to orchestrate where Jesus, our Messiah, will be born. These wise men would come and find their king. If you've ever seen Karis's <coughs> theatrical production that we talked about this morning, uh, The Heart of Christmas, to have a, uh, uh, a story about the fourth wise men uh, who was looking, and there's a famous song in that, in that movie about this, come find, I want to find my king. It's a beautiful story. It's awesome. It's powerful. Uh, it's hard to keep. Uh, I, 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 not to get teary eyed watching that movie and whatnot. But they were coming from Persia. They were coming from the east to find their king. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Let me just pause here. There was a time back in, uh, uh, I, forget, I think it was back before I met Sherry. I think it was in 95 ish, somewhere in that neighborhood. But I was going through a tough time about something. I can't remember all the details. But I remember I heard this children's song about the wise man. It was about follow that star, follow that star, no matter where it takes you, no matter how far. And it was a, I was on a, a fork in a road and making some decisions. And I knew what I wanted to do, but I knew what God was calling me to do. And a decision I didn't want to make in the flesh. But I knew it was the right decision. I knew it was going to be for my welfare. I knew it was going to be good. But I had to trust God. And I just remember hearing that song, follow that star, follow that star, no matter what it takes you. As I'm listening to this children's song, I'm just hearing God say, trust me, trust me, follow me, let me lead you, let me guide you, no matter what it takes you, no matter how far. Trust me. And it just, uh, and that, that song just kept me, helped me make the right decision. And, uh, and, uh, and praise God, I did. I'm still here. So. I don't remember all the details, but it's just that with that little children's song. So, going back to Matthew 2 real quick. Saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. Let me just make one more mention. That one. Actually, let's switch gears here. One last major point I'm going to make before we wrap this up. I hope we tie this all together. So, we talked about the manger scene many different ways from the shepherd's point of view, Mary and Joseph. We've talked about the whole Bethlehem location. We've talked about uh, 
the wise men and the star. And, and again, I could have put in a lot more detail, but I'm trying to make this short. But I want to make one last point. point. First of all, there's different kinds of breed of sheep, but there's also called a, a wasi. Well, I'm not pronouncing that right. Wasi. They're a local breed of sheep to Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Cyprus, and Israel, and the whole region. Most sheep breed in the spring. This is just a natural thing that helps out over sheep. Rams are introduced in a few, male, female. When rams were weaned, the sheep gave birth in the autumn. This is what ones look like. Hawassi. Okay? A little different than this guy. Okay? But a Hawassi suit. Let me just clear a few little facts now. Jesus lived 33 and a half years. We know that. And we know by Luke 3.23 that he began his ministry when he was at Dave's church. And his ministry lasted three and a half years. Okay? Taking those details real quick. There was four Passovers during Jesus' ministry. What I'm trying to do here create a chronological uh, timeline here uh, to bring up one, one major point I want to bring up. So his first pass, the first Passover would have been around the baptism of John, which would have been approximately six months prior to the baptism of John. I can bring that out in just a few moments to prove that. The first Passover is described in these passages of John. His second Passover is talked about in John 5.1. If this is actually not the Passover, it's at least used to a major festival. There. The Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Sabbath, which would have happened prior to the Passover. So I'm not so worried about that one. But then the third Passover is in John 6.4, the feet of the 5,000, that's when that's mentioned. But the most significant one is the fourth one, is when he died on the cross. Because he is our Passover lamb. And we know that he was he was crucified in the spring. We know that. Okay? And we can read that in past the scriptures. But taking these facts, I'll come through the Feast of Tabernacles. The Passover when Jesus was crucified was the spring, like I just said. Okay? But if you take the rewind the clock three and a half years, that would place us into the autumn. Because six months from spring is autumn, right? It's just some basic, basic facts. So we also know that the, the three and a half years would have, the, the autumn would have been late September, early October, somewhere in that neighborhood. Because there's six months in between the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover is when Jesus died. Jesus. So six months prior to that is the Feast of Tabernacles. He lived three and a, 33 and a half years and measured three and a half years. But he, the, the half is between these two. And then you fast forward that 30 years, so a total of 33 and a half years, Jesus was born in autumn. He was born in between September and October. My, my, what I'm trying to say here, a little bit, just take this or leave this. But in John 1, 14, again, God's little translation says, and the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us, and we beheld his glory as an only begotten of a father for grace and truth. And I, Exodus 29, I have tabernacle in the midst of the sons of Israel, and it becomes a God. There's some other scriptures I can bring out. Um, I just want to fast forward to let me read all that again. I'm going to share a lot of different facts this morning. And this might not be a warm and fuzzy uh, inspirational message in one way. 
But I'm just trying to echo that Jesus didn't know the human God orchestrated for Jesus to be born in a very specific location at a very specific time in a very specific manner to a very specific family. There's a reason why God chose Mary. There's a reason why God chose Joseph and Anna, even in that process. There's a reason why God chose these things. There's a reason why he chose the wise men. Why he chose the priestly shepherds. Why did he shepherd? Why did God announce himself to shepherd? Why did he announce himself to some ranchers, or cattle man, or whatever, some other vocation? You know, a, a tentsmith, I mean, blacksmith, or timmaker. Why did he pick? Because there's a reason. There's a specific reason. But even also the, this whole tabernacle. You know, just feast of tabernacle. I mean, we see all these feasts in the Levitical law and everything. Everything, I'm trying to bring out everything. Not only is Jesus our wedding lamb, but it helps me appreciate the Old Testament from my New Testament point of view. That makes sense? I, should, I go through all that detail when I try to keep it short to not only did God fulfill prophecy, which is huge, but also our Messiah is revealed throughout Scripture. Even, even in the New Testament, when Paul preached and Jesus preached and others, they didn't have the New Testament yet. But they were able to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. I appreciate the Old Testament because I, I, we, we can read the New Testament. Because we do have the New Testament. But when I understand who Jesus is, and he's revealed through Scripture, he's revealed through, uh, through the cross, I appreciate the Old Testament much more. And that God went through all this detail to point that this child was born to us, to me. I might not have a lot of very powerful things to say in and of themselves in this history, but God went through all this detail, even all these Levitical laws, even having the, the, the woman with the issue of blood, all these different laws, so that he could usher in this child to us given to us that his government will be upon his shoulder. Ultimately, Jesus came to die that we could live. Whatever we're going through, whatever sickness, whatever failures we made, Jesus took it to the cross and he crucified it. Whatever we made mistakes of, whatever we done wrong, whatever sickness, whatever disease, whatever, Jesus came to die that we might live. But he orchestrated all these other historical events to usher in this Messiah. And if I knew everything I knew now, and I was one of those priestly shepherds, and I was one of those wise men, I would be going to go search my king. I would be way ready to go. I mean, you imagine, I'm not trying to be gory, but the shepherds, these priestly shepherds, had a lot of bloodshed. I don't know about you, but that's just one job I don't want. It's just too gory for me. And it's just not like it's one time, it's over, it's going to happen again tomorrow. And, and every day, and and, and, and whatnot, and, and and you know, sheep don't smell so pretty. Either. I mean, even when they're good, you know. But they went through all that, and finally, the real thing comes. You know, Mary and different things. Have you ever seen the movie The Nativity? And how they even point out how you know having a child, not being married, she could be stoned. You know, all these different things, we, we, don't, we, know, we, we don't think of all these different things. And some of the genealogies that we could have gone through and whatnot, but all this detail, even the genealogies point to me that God knew what he was doing to bring me my Savior. 
and it makes me appreciate the Old Testament. But I'm not here just trying to magnify the Old Testament. I'm here to magnify Jesus. God, who is doing. He knows what he's doing in your life. He, everything that you're going through, and at this point, there's people looking at it, it's just whatever we're going through, whatever's going on, even the things that are going to happen tomorrow, next year, whatever, Jesus already took care of it. He made provision before there was a need, before there was a problem. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. The cross was not God's plan B. It was his plan A. It was always God's plan A. And this child is born unto us. We can receive it. It's a gift. You know, Christmas is not... Praise God for all... I mean, I love the Christmas songs. I love the nativity scene. I love even just some of the... the the other things, the Christmas trees, the lights, and the gift wrapping, gift exchange, and you know, all kind of kind of stuff, even the, especially the cooking, you know, and whatnot. But, you know, never, never forget that Jesus is the reason for the season. And it's not just a Christmas story, it's life. This child, we can unwrap the gift anytime. We can have it anytime we need it. We can come to the throne of grace. He gave us the best gift of all. And, but once we receive this message, we can share it with others. We can love one another. We can forgive one another. We can lay hands and heal the sick. We can, uh, because we're not in ourselves, we're Christ is in us, we're in Christ. We have power. We have authority. Because this King, this Messiah, is living on the inside of us. <laughs> Making sense? Very simple. Um, Message just going through some history, different type of Christmas message you most people probably heard. Um, but I'm just trying. I'm, anything we do, I'm trying to magnify Jesus. I'm trying to magnify. If we can't apply it, to me it means nothing. I don't want it just to be a bunch of facts, even though I went over a bunch of facts. But I went over a bunch of facts to bring Jesus. Is, a king is here. This child is here. And it's just born into us. Lord, we worship you this morning. We exalt you. We magnify you. I don't know where everyone's at. I don't know what everyone's going through. But Lord, we just thank you. We adore you. We magnify you. And we thank you that you came to die that we might live. We worship you. We thank you. And we receive your gift, the gift of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, God bless you. We'll see you tonight. If you can be here, anyone. And if not, uh, have a Merry Christmas. And we will see you one more time before the year's over at least. Right. God bless you.